0: Hey everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. As I'm recording it, it is a very special time indeed. It is April 20th at Around 4.20 p.m. So, happy Weed's birthday to those who celebrate. I do think it is kind of funny that there is a specific time for smoking pot on a specific day, because, you know, if there's one thing I've noticed that stoners are really into, it is punctuality and scheduling. But do you know what, in my experience, stoners like maybe as much as those things? Reading comic books. Oh, and the 1979 film The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. Although that might just be one very specific stoner. Anyway, let's talk about a comic. We actually have a kind of different show that we're doing today. We're going to start our coverage of the storyline A Lonely Place of Dying, which is a five-part story that crosses over between Batman and New Titans. And so for the Batman episodes, I'm going to get some guests to fill in for Corey, and then he'll cover the New Titans issues with us. Sound good? Well then, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Batman number 440, October 1989. A Lonely Place of Dying, Chapter 1, Suspects. Written by Marv Wolfman, co-plotted by George Perez, draughted by Jim Aparo, inked by Mike DiCarlo, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Daniel Raspler and Denny O'Neill. Teen Titan Roll Call! Starfire. That's it. I mean, I guess technically there is a mysterious stranger in this issue who spoiler turns out to be Tim Drake, who later on becomes Robin and does eventually join a team called the Teen Titans and I think 2003. So maybe technically Tim Drake, but that's kind of a stretch. Previously in Batman, an indeterminate but seemingly short amount of comic book time ago, Batman's protege, Jason Todd, AKA Robin, but not that Robin, was murdered by the Joker, who was at the time Iran's delegate to the UN because the 80s. Bummer. Ever since Jason's death, Batman, AKA Bruce Wayne, has been acting like a real asshole lashing out at those around him, and pushing himself way too hard. Previously in New Titans. After returning from space, Nightwing, aka Dick Grayson, was shocked to learn that his replacement as Robin had been murdered. After firing precocious late-season cast edition Danny fucking Chase for being an insensitive dipshit, hooray, Dick hurried back to Wayne Manor to check in on his mentor Bruce. The angst-ridden acrobatic adventurer was unsettled by his surrogate Bat-Dad's current condition, so he told the Titans that he was taking some time off to keep an eye on things and appointed Cyborg as the gang's temporary leader. Gadzooks! Does Danny fucking Chase being fired affect this storyline in any way? What steps will Dick take to make sure that Bruce is doing okay? And has Batman ever fought a villain called The Ravager before? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No, not really. I only mentioned it because this is kind of a dark issue, and thinking about Danny fucking Chase getting shit can’t always cheers me up. He gets distracted by some breaking circus news and wanders off. And... No, he hasn't. What a odd question. Batman stands atop the Gotham City Dam, locked in mortal combat, with his archenemy, the Ravager, with whom he has been playing a deadly game of cat and mouse for weeks now. Huh. Is this the Ravager who is Deathstroke's son? No, he's dead. Deathstroke's daughter, then? No, we haven't met her yet. Deathstroke's half-brother? No, although that is also a The Ravager. Deathstroke's enemy. No, he's still going by the name The Jackal right now. This The Ravager is some random guy in a bondage mask with the top cut off who has apparently murdered a couple of cops and the DCU equivalent of Donnie and Marie Osmond. Okay. You wouldn't think this guy would be much of a match for the Caped Crusader, but... The Ravager's got a knife, and Batman is sleepy, so it's a pretty good fight. The Ravager manages to get a few decent stabs in and hits Batman with a chain, but eventually Batman knocks him off the dam and sends him plummeting into the rushing waters far below. Convinced that although the immediate threat is over, he has not seen the last of the Ravager, a battered Batman staggers to the Batmobile and drives off we see that a mysterious stranger has been monitoring the fight and taking pictures. Once Batman has left, the stranger stuffs his camera into a backpack, hops on a 10-speed, and pedals away. Meanwhile, inside a downtown office building that appears to be under construction, a different mysterious stranger listens intently to a news broadcast on an old-timey radio. As he listens, the nature of the broadcast starts to change. There is a squawk of static and the announcer begins to address the stranger directly. The voice on the radio is like, Hi, I'm you. Also, you're going crazy. The stranger is like, Yeah, that makes sense. The voice is like, Also, you gotta murder Batman. The stranger is like, Aw, but I don't wanna. I sent the Ravager to do it, and if he couldn't, no one can. I mean, he has a knife. What am I supposed to do? The voice is like, look, I don't know, just kill him already. Maybe you can lure him into a crime scene and then blow him up with a bomb? Something like that? The stranger is like, okay, fine. Now, can you go back to being a radio broadcast? I don't want to miss Prairie Home Companion. The voice is like, sheesh, you really are a psycho. As the stranger settles in to plot Batman's demise and listen to some punchlineless anecdotes about life in suburban Minnesota, Batman stumbles through the door of his mansion and collapses in a heap. Bruce Wayne's long-suffering butler, Alfred, carries the battered billionaire-do-well-bad enthusiast to a bed and tends to his wounds, keeping a careful watch over him as he finally succumbs to a fitful and feverish slumber. At an undisclosed location, the first mysterious stranger— the one with the camera and the bicycle, looks over some old photographs and newspaper clippings about the exploits of Batman and Robin. He thinks to himself, Batman seems like he's been losing it ever since Jason Todd died. Even before that, though, he's been a little bit off. Jason wasn't nearly as good a Robin as Dick Grayson was. I wish Batman was cool again. He lingers over a picture of the Flying Graysons the family acrobat act that Dick had been part of before his parents were murdered at the circus and he became Robin. The Graysons are posing with a happy couple and a young boy. Hmm. Back at Wayne Manor, Bruce Wayne finally wakes up. He has Alfred bring him breakfast in bed and is like, Thanks for patching me up, Alfred. I don't know what I'd do without you. Alfred is like, Um, yeah, about that. I know our relationship has kind of a weird power dynamic with me being both your surrogate dad and your employee. So, I hope this isn't too out of line, but you've been fucking up a lot lately. When you first started batmanning around, the whole deal was you were a detective who outthought all the crooks and overprepared so you didn't get beat up all that often. Ever since Jason died, You're just trying to outfight everyone, and hardly seem to be thinking or preparing at all. It's kind of scary. I want to help you and be supportive of your whole unhealthy fixation on crime thing, but I don't want to see you get killed. Bruce listens thoughtfully to Alfred's heartfelt words of concern, and is like, Alfred, you are so right. I'm sorry I've been worrying you unnecessarily. You've always been there for me, and from now on, I'll start making sure that I treat you more like a father and less like a servant. Just kidding. Bruce listens stoically to Alfred's heartfelt words of concern, and then silently glares at Alfred until the concerned butler sheepishly leaves the room. Boo! Bruce drags himself out of bed, limps down to the Batcave, shaves, changes into his crime-fighting duds, And heads out to go get beat up some more. That'll teach Alfred. Later that evening, a mafia guy is out at the opera. The radio listening to stranger comes up to him and says that they need to talk. At least I'm pretty sure it's the radio listening to stranger. He's wearing a trench coat and fedora, so there's always a chance that it's really a shrunk down Godzilla. Probably not Godzilla is like, hey, you know those two incompetent thugs who work for you whose shit you're sick of? The Mafia guy is like, "Mamma Mia, I like it a pizza pie! Okay, technically he doesn't say that, but he's enough of a stereotype that he might as well. Probably not Godzilla is like, Send those two thugs to the Zwy Brothers warehouse at 2am tomorrow. I'll take care of them for you at the same time as I take care. Of the Batman. The Mafia guy is like, Wait, does 2 a.m. tomorrow mean tonight or tomorrow night? Okay, he doesn't actually say that either, but I wish he had, because it's the sort of thing that really ought to be clarified if you're trying to schedule something. Probably not Godzilla goes home and turns on the radio. He's like, Well, voice in my head that I hear through the radio, are you happy with the Batman killing plans that I made? The voice on the radio is like, yeah, whatever, just do it already. Then he switches back to just saying regular radio stuff. Probably not Godzilla gets annoyed and smashes the shit out of the radio. The next morning, the first mysterious stranger, the one with the bicycle and the camera, goes to New York and watches the Titans Tower for a while. He photographs all of the Titans leaving, but notices Nightwing is not among them, he follows Starfire back to the apartment that she and Dick share, but is disappointed that Dick is not there. Camera Stranger resolves to talk to Starfire pretty soon. The next night, at 2am, acting on an anonymous tip that he received, Batman is staking out the Zwy Brothers warehouse when two incompetent thugs arrive. So I guess probably not Godzilla meant 2 a.m. the following night when he said tomorrow and the mafia guy understood that. But as a matter of policy, I still think they should have confirmed it in some way. Anyway, probably not Godzilla lurks outside the building. When he sees that everyone has arrived, he's like, excellent. My clever plan is coming to fruition. Incompetent thug number one turns to his partner and is like, well, Incompetent thug number two. Are you ready to start doing some bad guy stuff? Incompetent thug number two is like, I guess so, Incompetent thug number one, but I still don't feel good about it. I mean, doing evil shit for the Mafia is one thing, but the boss says now we're supposed to steal books so that a publishing company can make more money? It just doesn't seem right. Publishing companies creep me out. Incompetent thug one is like, yeah, I hear you, Incompetent Thug Too, Publishing companies are the evilest. But a job is a job. So let's steal these books and fuck some hard-working authors out of their royalties. Batman pops up and is like, Working for a publishing company? That's a new low, even for slime like you. The thugs whip out some fancy guns and start shooting. Incompetent Thug 1 is like, It's Batman! He's here, just like we were told he would be. Wait, so they're in on the scheme to kill Batman? I thought they were just patsies who were going to get blown up. Huh. Batman throws the book at the thugs. Well, technically he throws a lot of books at the thugs. Then he runs them over with a forklift. Then he punches them, which seems like overkill. As he fights, Batman thinks to himself that Alfred was right. He hasn't been using his head lately but something just clicked into place for him. All the crimes he's been fighting lately have had something in common. They all seem to involve the number two in some way. This crime, for instance, is taking place at 2 a.m. on the 22nd day of the month. It involves two thugs and is happening at the Zwei Brothers warehouse. Zwei is German for two. As Batman finishes beating up the thugs and tying them up for the police, the realization dawns on him. The person behind this latest crime wave is Two-Face. As Batman is having this epiphany, the radio listening to Probably Not Godzilla Mysterious Stranger is arriving back at his office in the construction site. He shows us his face for the first time. Or maybe I should say he shows us his faces for the first time. Because Batman is, of course, correct. It's Two-Face. Ooh, I just thought of another clue. His clever plan to have two incompetent thugs shoot Batman was a steaming pile of number two. That Two-Face certainly commits to a motif. Once he's done at the warehouse, Batman pops over to Commissioner Gordon's office and sneaks in through the window. He's like, Hey, Commissioner Gordon, do you know where Two-Face is? Commissioner Gordon is like, okay, first of all, it's like three in the morning. Why am I even in my office right now? And B, do you mean the Two-Face that you busted out of prison a couple of months ago because you thought he could maybe help you solve a different crime, but then he double-crossed you and escaped? That Two-Face? Batman is like, yeah, that's the guy. Do you know where he is? Commissioner Gordon is like, no. No no, we don't. He turns around, but of course, in the time he does so, Batman has already left. Later that morning, the bicycle-slash-camera stranger goes to Starfire's apartment and rings the doorbell. When the spicy space princess answers the door in her robe, the stranger is like, you're Coriander's, right? The titan known as Starfire? Starfire is like, I'm not sure if I should tell you that. I think I might have a secret identity. I'm honestly not sure about that, though. The stranger is like, Is Dit- I mean, is Nightwing here? I need to talk to him. Starfire is like, I'm sorry, he's on sabbatical right now. Is there anything the rest of the Titans can help you with? The stranger is like, No! And runs away. After he's gone, Starfire is like, Wait, how did that guy know where I live? I wonder who he was anyway. The stranger heads over to Dick's old apartment and starts rummaging through the desk looking for clues as to Nightwing's whereabouts. Clipped from a recent paper, he finds a newspaper article about how Haley's Circus, the former home of the Flying Graysons, has just gone out of business. Figuring that that's where Dick must have gone, the stranger packs up his backpack and heads off to the circus. Which I'm sure will work out totally fine. I mean, What destination could possibly be safer and less creepy than an abandoned circus in a comic book universe? To be continued. And my good-for-many-things brother, Corey, is off in space getting his origin retconned right now. He'll be back next week, probably with a new power set or something like that. Maybe a new codename. We'll find out. Fortunately, in the meantime, we are lucky enough to be joined by Elana Levin. Hey! Ilana is the host of Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. It's a podcast where they talk with comics creators and guest experts and ask them about comics and comic-adjacent media through a socially engaged lens. Elana also hosts its spin-off podcast, Deep Space Dive, where they examine the themes in Star Trek's best and most political show, Deep Space Nine. Elana tweets a little bit too much at Elana underscore Brooklyn. I would maybe quibble about that last bit. I'm always happy to see you tweet stuff. But uh, thank you so much for joining us, Elana.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it's it's really only my eye strain and sleep habits that suffer from it the most.
0: Ah, uh, Well, uh, a small price to pay for my entertainment.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I live to serve. It's so good to be back. I was so excited when you reached out. You know, I'm a huge fan of the show. I had such a fun time last time. And this time you've repaid my loyalty by asking me to read a comic that was actually wonderful. So I'm so glad you liked
0: it. Yeah. Honestly, we'll get into it a little bit. I was a little annoyed at how much I enjoyed this comic book. We can talk about that more soon. But yeah, last time you were on, we talked about Young Justice, which was a comic book that I think was not really to either of our taste, to put it perhaps a little bit mildly. But you had mentioned that Tim Drake was the best Robin. So now that we are launching into a multi part storyline that features the debut of Tim Drake, I thought I'd have you back and get your thoughts on that. So thanks so much for being available for this.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I, it's really funny though, because I am not particularly well-versed in Tim Drakeness in general. Much of my enthusiasm stems from the fact that he is now canonically bi, which makes me very, very happy. And I think you can very much argue through the text that he's the Robin. There's kind of like the most justification for Batman having a teen sidekick under mm-hmm. these particular circumstances. But like, I've read so many more things with Dick Grayson than I have with Tim. So this has been exciting. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever read The Origin until now.
0: I hadn't before either. And I still haven't read most of it, to be fair. I'm trying not to spoil this story for myself going forward. So I've really just read this one of it. But I remember when Tim Drake was introduced as a character, I was actually reading comic books at the time. I wasn't reading Batman comics at the time. I did pick up, it came out, I think, a couple years after this, but the Robin miniseries that was kind of. Tim Drake's coming out party as Robin, not his coming out party as By. That <laughs> was still a little bit down the road, but I actually really enjoyed that. And that got me reading some uh, Richard Dragon comics because he was a character in that, which I ended up mm, enjoying some of. Definitely finding the character problematic in a lot of very interesting ways, certainly. But uh, I like the character Tim Drake, and I think he is... I don't know, like a point of view character for new readers that makes sense and works in a way that a lot of that type of character that Marv Wolfman has tried to introduce has not worked.
1: Yes, yes. And sorry if I'm going a little bit too far ahead, but the way that Tim Drake himself is a fan of Batman and is a follower and viewer and watcher of Batman Mm -hmm. very much aligns him with the reader you know, even though he's like a rich kid, the fact that his parents weren't brutally murdered does make him more similar to most readers who, you know, God willing, hopefully also did not have their parents brutally murdered. Or like, I guess, I mean, that's not, you know, just Todd's his parents were brutally murdered, but his parents are fucking nightmare. <laughs> so, you know, one hopes that the relationship with the parents be more like Tim's and less like the other kids' situation. So I think there's a whole, the whole number of reasons that he's a parallel. Additionally, he's the character who everybody's always saying how smart they are, and comics readers want to think of themselves as being like the smart kid. So that aligns up very clearly.
0: Yeah. And I mean, yes, Tim Drake is like a very smart character, but he does have other flaws. Like it's not like he's great at fighting for the most part. He goes through training to get there. But yeah. he's not like an immediately perfect character. He's not a sassy, wise, kraken Jerkhole like Danny fucking Chase. <laughs> it seems like he is correcting some of the mistakes that I think maybe Wolfman recognizes he made with Danny fucking Chase, and I really like this character. So you hadn't been all that familiar with Tim Drake necessarily as a character. What's your background with Batman?
1: Well. Like many people of my age, I saw the Batman movie in the theaters. Did I see it in the theaters? I don't even remember. It was a long time (laughs) ago. I saw the Batman movie, if not in the theaters, then at home, but like in the appropriate time frame of things. I was immediately drawn to the Batman the animated series show because I was like literally the kind of child who was very excited about art direction Mm. and have always loved Art Deco. And that's like somebody spending a lot of money making a retro looking cartoon is exactly everything that I wanted from television and still do in many ways, you know? (laughs) So I I knew the character most through that. And I think the first Batman comic I read was probably something like The Dark Knight Returns or... I mean, there must've been some random issue that I read... of somebody's collection prior to that. But like, I didn't grow up reading Batman comics per se. Like, I was so just a Marvel reader that it's entirely possible that my first Batman comics I read were some like prestige thing and not like a normal Batman comic.
0: That's actually pretty similar to my background with the Batman character. Like, at the time this comic book came out, I liked Batman And I liked comic books, but I don't think I had read any Batman comic books. Oh, yeah. Like you, I think, honestly, maybe the first Batman solo title I read was Dark Knight Returns. I liked it a lot at the time, but Batman was the one superhero who was available outside of the comic book medium for such a long time that it was easy to think of them kind of as being separate from one another.
1: You know, you reminded me, I always loved the 1960s TV show as well. But that show, it was so campy that I didn't feel like it endeared me to the character itself.
0: It totally did for me. Like, I watched it when I would go over to the babysitter's house because we didn't have cable or anything like that. But I would watch it over there and I didn't get that it was camp. I was just like, this is exciting and it's colorful. And it starts with the animated sequence that like shows them as comic book characters. And I loved that version of Batman. I loved the Tim Burton movie. But to this day, honestly, there's still a lot of Batman that I haven't read. I know there are a lot of really influential runs, but he was never really my comic book character, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, I've read lots, but not all of the Grant Morrison era of Batman books. I guess I would say from the late 90s, but mostly 21st century, I've read Batman books in drips and drabs. And I wouldn't be surprised if I was looking at a reading list, I'd probably would be like, oh, I've actually read more of this than I thought I've had. You know what I mean? Because that's often true.
0: I know exactly what you mean. I was kind of thinking the same thing about the character. I was going through my collection and was like, oh, I have like three Batman comics like that say Batman as the first thing on them. (laughs) And I was like, so I guess I haven't really read any Batman. But then I was like, well, I've read a bunch of Bob Haney, Brave and the Bold comics, and Mm -hmm. I love those. And those also have Jim Aparo art in them. And so like in this comic, Batman looks right to me. And like, right right. at the time that this came out, even I think I was reading the Justice League International and he was a big part of that. And I've read like a bunch of old Justice League comics and he was part of that. And he just ends up popping up a lot in the DC universe. And it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, so I guess I have read a lot of Batman. It's just things that I don't remember Batman being in. Like, (laughs) I think in comic books, Batman is kind of like sugar or racism like he's in everything but you forget about it
1: you know oh my god yes i mean i would say that a lot of my initial exposure to batman was a lot of the very much like prestige batman stuff but there's totally just random like i've read probably half the issues of nightfall but not them all because I was cheap and getting things out of like 25 cent bins. Mm -hmm. And those random issues of Nightfall I read were definitely very good. You know, so it's kind of also some stuff like that. I also loved the first volume of The Dark Knight Strikes Again, because it came out initially in three like Mm -hmm. prestige comics. Each subsequent one was worse and worse (laughs) as they deviated farther and farther from my politics. But none of the things that I was most excited by, I oh, you know this is interesting, none of the things that I was most excited by in it had anything to do with Batman himself, right? I was so excited about Carrie Kelly. I was so excited with the sequence with the Atom. I'm always excited with anything with Green Arrow in it. I mean, th- th- that being a comic that really recognized how insanely powerful Plastic Man was, was really interesting. So mm-hmm. Batman wasn't really the draw for me. I think one of the things that you get from watching the Batman 60s TV show is just how much of what sells the character is the cast of characters around him. And his rogues gallery is just so endlessly entertaining that that is like a big piece of why I think people care or interested in the character.
0: I think you're right. And I think also part of it is just he has been such a big part of comic books for Mm -hmm. so long that he almost becomes background and you kind of take portions of the character Mm. for granted. Yeah. I don't know. I was thinking about this recently with, like, the new Batman movie and how, like, the grim and gritty Batman is the one that's supposed to be the realistic one. And (laughs) to me, I love the Bob Haney Batman, which Mm. certainly is not realistic, but in a way is no less realistic than everyone taking this guy who dresses like a fucking giant bat in a rubber and latex suit super seriously and nobody makes fun of him. Like, that (laughs) is in its own way more ridiculous than him just walking down the street on a sunny day and thinking to himself, what a nice spring day. Look at all of these pretty girls around. I'm Batman. (laughs) But he is just such a big part of comic books, and mm-hmm. reading this comic book makes me want to read more Batman stuff. As I yes. said, it's really good, and it has a really different tone to it than the Teen Titans stuff that I've been reading lately, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they're both by Marv Wolfman. This really seems to be a more engaged Marv Wolfman, frankly, than the one we've been getting in the Teen Titans lately. Yeah. It has a almost film noir or pulpy quality to it that works really well. Yeah. I really loved this story.
1: No, this comic is so good. You could like convince me it was Daredevil. That's how good it is. (laughs) Which
0: I know I've been over this before, but it is completely ridiculous that Batman is named Batman and Daredevil is not named Batman. He is blind and uses echolocation (laughs) to fight crime. That guy should be Batman.
1: Yes, but he doesn't want you to know that he's blind. But I guess you wouldn't necessarily assume that from the name, I suppose. I mean,
0: people don't assume that Batman is blind. That's oh. also true. Or maybe they do. Maybe that's why he's such an effective crime fighter. <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> really one, of the, yeah, one of the psychological techniques that he employs.
1: No, but that's true. This, this comic is really good, and like I want to just keep reading it. I mean, there's a lot of artists credited on it. Like, a lot. So I'm having a hard time sort of parsing out how that breaks down.
0: I think Jim Aparo is the penciler for this. And then the inks are by Mike DiCarlo. And I, I okay. think that's the main art team. And then Adrian Roy does the colors. And John Costanza is the letterer. OK. Which is interesting because most of the Jim Aparo work that I've read, he is the penciler and then he does his own inks. Own inks, yeah. Not just his own inks, though. Like, he's also his own letterer, which is Mm -hmm. really rare. But I think by this point in his career, they're teaming him up with an inker. And I think Mike DiCarlo does a really nice job with it.
1: Yeah, the inks are fucking great. They're really great.
0: There's so much detail in it. And like I said, having read the Bob Haney, Brave and the Bold stuff a lot recently, this Batman looks right to me. And Mm -hmm. it's just cool that it's the same penciler from those comics. Especially since it's such a part of this story, how much Batman has changed and grown darker over the years and isn't as happy as he used to be. Having the same artist draw him as when he did have a lighter tone, now drawing him in such a different context for the character kind of drives home all the shit that he's going through in this issue. And that really worked well for me.
1: Yeah. And it it looks like Batman. His age looks right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. His hair is appropriate to both the time period and his sort of generational and kind of being like a sort of conservative type, you know, business guy in his regular life. There's like subtle things that are happening with the way he's portrayed
0: mm-hmm. that
1: are really astute.
0: Absolutely. Also his uniform looks right to me. I know that's just Mm. kind of age specific for me. Like I know I I said I wasn't reading Batman comics, but I was peripherally aware of the character and the way he was being marketed at the time. Like this is early 80s Batman costume, still from like the DC style guide or whatever. Yeah. That looks right to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is sort of like house style par excellence, basically, like. If you're going to go for like what house style is, but to the to the highest pinnacle, I think in general that this comic has that. The paneling work is I think what's really, um, sends it up as like just being ab- above and beyond. He's got such great lines. He understands the physics and he draws the human body so fucking well. All of the posing and positions feel really like, natural and dynamic and believable you know the body form is idealized but doesn't look like a freak of nature i like really dislike when characters are drawn (laughs) that look like freak of nature and they're not like the hulk or something you know the hulk can have muscles that don't exist that's fine he's like mutated from gamma radiation right the muscles that bruce wayne have should all be muscles that people have i think that that's a good way to portray him
0: I I think that's fair. I mean, I, I it is weird if you see him looking like, I, I mean, I know it's a very stylized choice and I actually don't hate this. So it's a weird example to bring up. But like the way Kelly Jones draws him, where he just looks like a sack of pebbles with some pointy ears. If you saw Bruce Wayne looking like that, I think everybody <laughs> around him would be like, what the fuck is wrong with that CEO? <laughs>
1: I just googled that and yeah that is I get what you mean though like it is an aesthetic choice it's not like it's a Rob Liefeld situation where it's like you don't know what you're doing do you but um but yeah it's not the look that really makes sense to me so I mentioned that I
0: was honestly a little bit annoyed at how much I like this story and That is because it is the first issue of a multi-part arc, and I have been burned by Marf Wolfman on those so many times (laughs) in the very recent past that I can't even really enjoy this with a sense of guarded optimism. It's more, like, cynically impressed. Like, I'm, like, a little angry at how well Lucy is holding that football because I do want to kick it, but I know she's going to tear it away soon. (laughs) And there already are in this story, despite how much I liked it and despite how much I liked the tone and the feel and the storytelling in it, some signs that the plot as intended is maybe starting to go a little bit astray. One of those things Mm. is it very much sets up in the story that there is going to be a bomb in that warehouse and there is not a bomb in the warehouse. And that makes Two-Face's plan make no goddamn sense. Mm. Did...
1: You get that at all? No, but I see why you'd say that.
0: Like, he sets up these two guys to meet Batman in this warehouse. He goes to the gangster. It's like, look, you're looking to get rid of those guys, right? Well, here's how we can get rid of both of our problems. They'll lure Batman here. Batman goes here. Two-Face walks by the building, sees that the shit's happening in there, and is like, all right, everything's going according to my plan. This is great. There is at one point in the captions, it just says tick, 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 tick. (laughs) And then nothing happens. So I guess his plan was just like, "Ah, I've been trying for nigh on 30 years to kill Batman or whatever indeterminate amount of comic book time he's been doing that in this comic. And I've never been successful, but I'm sure that these two admittedly incompetent hench people will be able to murder him with no problem. That's my master plan.
1: Oh, okay, But like, you know, like this is too. Okay, so what? I thought the comic did a really good job of the Two-Face reveal. Like I wasn't spoiled for it. And I was like, oh, perfect. Brilliant. Just paid off so very well. But the thing with Two-Face is he isn't actually trying like neither side of Two-Face is actually trying to kill Batman. Like, this is a stalker story. This is your, like, toxic ex who won't go away. So Two-Face not doing a good job of killing Batman (laughs) is a a choice. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, that's a feature, not a bug in the storyline. One thing that I think is a little bit more of a bug and is also a Marv Wolfman calling card is the Mm -hmm. character Ravager in this book. (laughs) First of all, having a character named Ravager, this is one of five characters that Marv Wolfman has created named the Ravager. (laughs) Yeah, this is the first one, I think, that isn't connected to Deathstroke at all. But I was like, oh, wait, did I miss the first part of this story? No, this is this Ravager's first appearance and Mm -hmm. also his last appearance.
1: It's so weird because like they're making him out to be like a serial rapist kind of bad guy, it sounds like. Those guys, they don't usually give them superhero costumes. But I guess someone like Sabretooth is a serial rapist and a costume wearer. So
0: is he a rapist?
1: I thought he was just a serial killer. Eh, it's, But it's sort of like from that line of like, he's like not trying to steal money. He's trying to cause pain for people and like doing kind of believable things. Gotcha. And so it feels a little, it felt a little bit like this guy's got a fancy outfit for that. But um, it is a fancy
0: outfit. It's a weird outfit.
1: Those chains. Yeah, you're going to grab that. It
0: very much seems like he is wearing bondage gear. Oh, yeah. So, like, the the face mask that he has, it is weird the way that it is set up, that it, like, goes right down to his mouth. It is like a bondage hood, but mm-hmm. then he's like, well, I, I, I just saw an X-Men comic, so I want to do the uh, the <laughs> head sock thing with the top cut out so my hair can flop over mm-hmm. the top of it. It's like he did that to like the bondage mask type thing. It is a very strange look for a superhero. It is also interesting. I think that when he falls off of the waterfall, the (laughs) caption says they will meet again. It's like, no, they actually won't. We will never (laughs) see this dude again. We will get three different ravagers after this point, but not this one.
1: Yeah, that is amazing. I actually did a quick check to be like, are we sure he isn't actually the crippler, speaking of Daredevil? But no, he's not actually. Oh, he
0: okay. Have a costume
1: like him at all. But you said like it was like bondage theme costume. I'm like scrolling a lot. now. Nah. But um, those chains are not in a good location. Not that this is unique. Frequently, we see characters who have items on their costume that would really be good handholds for fighting against them. But mm-hmm. he's, not, he's not alone in that form over function choice. Right. No, the
0: the impracticality of his costume was not a problem for me. It was just the aesthetic choices that were made with it were like, huh.
1: But like, look, he somehow magically gives Batman a fever. Yeah. Maybe I don't understand germ theory properly, but like, I don't know. It seems like he gave him a fever, but he actually should have just given him like multiple bruises and not a fever.
0: Yeah, it, it did seem like an odd choice. Maybe it's just like infection setting in immediately. It is also I think we are supposed to get the impression that he has been battling with the Ravager for a fair amount of time at this Mm. point and has been running himself ragged after dealing with the death of Jason Todd. And I think that comes across really well. Yeah. And there is that awesome scene where Alfred basically gives him a lecture and is just like, you're fucking up, dude. And I'm here to help you, but I'm not going to watch you kill yourself.
1: Yeah, no, all of the interpersonal conversations in this are great. Ar- Arpaio like actually understands building dramatic tension between two talking heads and drawing faces that are evo- evoking emotion, and then like that final long panel at the bottom of that conversation between him and Bruce, where you have Bruce like slumped over in one end of it. At Alfred leaving on the other, but he's sort of like hunched and crouched over. It's just really good storytelling. Mm-hmm. I'll talk more about Alfred when we go to our awards section.
0: I I think I'll be mentioning him there too as well. Yeah. You talked about the Two Face reveal, and I agree with you. I thought that was done really well. There was some very clever dialogue going back and forth with. Two-Face talking to himself through hallucinating hearing himself on the radio. Yeah. Like, it seems like probably that is not a real way that his particular psychosis would manifest itself, but it's a dramatic choice that I appreciated. And then you do get the reveal when he turns to camera at the end and it's like, oh, Two-Face. Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't feel ripped off by it. Like it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it mm-hmm. also isn't hitting you over the head with it too hard
1: beforehand. Well, what I love is that this comic is positioning Two-Face with Tim Drake because like there's more like, I, I, you know, coming to this comic, I knew this was going to be where we were going to meet Tim Drake. I didn't know that this is a Two-Face story. So, I'm watching these characters like taking photos of Batman, obsessing about Batman, stalking Batman. And you're like, which one of these is the violent <laughs> killer? And which one of these is your protege to be? The lines are, are more <laughs> complex than you might imagine. Which I think it's really dark and interesting.
0: No, I, I agree. I think that's a really interesting parallel. I think, in some ways, reading this now, The reveal of Tim Drake, which we don't get in this issue, which I think is kind of an odd choice that they're making. It's one that I think Wolfman has done before, but I think now it is more impactful if we're looking back and we get the reveal in, I think it's the next issue.
1: It is, yeah. It's the Teen Time 60.
0: Where it's like, oh, that's Tim Drake. We don't know Tim Drake at this point. He's been in one flashback before when he was a little kid. So, like, you get the reveal that this person whose face we've never seen is someone whose face we've never seen. I don't think it has the same impact. Yeah. But it's something that, as I said, Wolfman's done before. It came up in the Who is Wonder Girl story with, uh, what's her face? The moon lady who came down and dumped all of her thoughts into Wonder Girl. <laughs> and it, it was just odd to have that, like, I don't know, that big prestige moment. And it's like, <gasps> The character I've never seen before is a person who we don't know. <laughs> Why were you obscuring their face before? <laughs> that being said, I think it probably does read better now looking back now that we know who Tim Drake is being like, oh, that's mm-hmm. Tim Drake. And uh, I, I don't know, just kind of interesting to think about the shifting context of the book.
1: Yeah, but it's just a good job of such a good job of building suspense and of telling a mystery. One of the things that I think is really smart is um, when you have the uh, page where Tim is looking at all the old photos of Batman and stuff. Mm -hmm. There's this caption that's over a picture of Batman with Dick, and another with Batman with Jason, and Mm -hmm. the caption is, um, "He seemed happier with Dick," and (laughs) and like now I guess it's like he doesn't care. It's the next panel, but it's in that within that panel, you have a photo of Batman holding an award and smiling, and Dick is smiling, and then the next photo is of Jason and Batman and they're both scowling. And it's sort of like I think this is on purpose, but it might not be, but it's hilarious. Like it's it's like basically like, yeah, Dick was just much better than Jason. It seems like a sort of subtext to it. And it's unclear if that is through the eyes of Tim or if that's through the eyes of Marv Wolfman, so to speak. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, I I do know what you mean. I I think to an extent, and we've seen this before with Marv Wolfman, I think in the way he kind of turned on the character Danny Chase, I think Mm -hmm. the same thing is maybe happening with Jason Todd, where he's like, yeah, this character that I was trying to do, it's not working. Audiences aren't responding to it. No, I don't like him either. Mm. It's interesting. You talked about Tim looking at the photos. There's something that happens in this book that I didn't pick up on the first time reading it, and I think it's a really clever idea. I think the execution of it is maybe a little bit off, but the panels that are depicting photographs, whether it's in Dick's apartment or photographs that Tim is taking of Batman, are colored differently than other panels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's clever to do it that way. But I wish they had gone with maybe black and white instead, because the way that they have them colored is with a combination of blue and purple when it's a photo. And that is so close to the normal color palette of the subsequent panels that it read initially to me more like a printing issue than it did a stylistic choice that was being made It was only on rereading it that I was like, oh, that's why that's happening. You picked up on it right away that that was what they were doing?
1: I did. Um, It might be because, you know, the first ones we see are from newspaper clippings. And with the newspaper clipping, you like, you know that this is supposed to be a piece of photo printed on some shitty paper, you know?
0: Right. No, with the newspaper printings, by that time I had gotten it. But in the like opening pages, like on the second page where Batman and Ravager are fighting,
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. I had just read that as like artistic, like. But you're right. No, those are photos that Tim has taken of them fighting. Mm-hmm. And you're so, right. like, there's no reason that you would have read it there. I just was like, oh, this is art. Like, I, <laughs> but like, no, this is actually not just art. This is storytelling. And
0: I think it could be really interesting. But like, if there had been like even like rounded panel edges or something like that, because it cuts back and forth between the images, mm-hmm. and I think it's a really interesting technique. But I wish it had been black and white or just a slightly different palette choice that was made in it, because it just doesn't read the way I think it's supposed to.
1: Here's the thing, like color photos from like the 70s and very early 80s faded to like a browner, murkier color. But this Mm -hmm. is 1990. I don't remember there being a tendency for like cheap photo prints towards this color palette you can't be like oh this is like a technology issue or you know there is yeah there really isn't a particular reason to
0: yeah it's not like the 70s i think of being kind of sepia toned partly because of the way photographs aged and partly because in a lot of the places where they were taking photographs at the time there was literally just more smog and air pollution Yes, (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> but
0: I don't think there's such a an equivalent of sepia tone no. that's like indigo tone for like no, the no. late '80s, where yeah, for some reason everything was purple and blue. Then nobody
1: knows really, why. Actually, no, but that's the thing. In the late '80s and early '90s, everything was turquoise and purple. But that's just an aesthetic <laughs> decision and not necessarily related to the photos. Just fashion, right?
0: Choices. Right. The fashion was, but the skin tones weren't necessarily, and the mountains weren't probably.
1: Yeah. But there's definitely like definitely a lot of thought in the coloring. And I would love to see what this looked like a newsprint before it was you know, fixed up online. I'm, I'm curious.
0: Yeah, I'm reading the newsprint version of it, and it definitely is the case with that. But like I said, to the point where I was initially wondering if it was a printing issue.
1: How much does him looking back at the photo clippings remind you of Watchmen?
0: Oh, it hadn't at the time, but it totally does now.
1: And it makes perfect sense, you know, right?
0: Yeah, in terms of when this comic book came out, just how really influential that was.
1: Yeah, just like lots of comics have always had people reading newspapers, newspapers, clippings, etc. But there's just like something around the page. What is this page nine, which is one of the really densely Tim looking at photos from the photo book thing. Like I'm just like I'm just like feeling so much like people looking through the scrapbooks and Mm -hmm. clippings from Watchmen in the way this is framed.
0: One of my favorite weirder touches that's in this comic book is the plan that the two henchmen that Batman catches were following. It's not the first time we've seen the publishing industry be denigrated in the pages of a Marv Wolfman written comic, and I always appreciate that. I don't think the plan makes a ton of sense, but there's also a lot about publishing I don't understand. The publishing company hired thugs who work for the mafia to steal all of the books in a warehouse so that they can claim insurance money and then resell the books at, I guess, used bookstores to get double profits and not have to pay any royalties to authors. Is that a thing that really happens?
1: No, I would have assumed it it was going to be like, we'll burn this down for the insurance money type situation. But no, I
0: mean, maybe they're going to burn down the warehouse so that they can say that they lost all the books, but they do specifically say, and then we'll sell them and we'll get twice as much money. And I'm like, huh, does this mean that the mafia owns a lot of used bookstores? Hmm. I had always heard that the Mafia did not have a great retirement plan. That had always that been great. my understanding. But maybe I am misinformed. Maybe the Mafia retirement plan is like they set you up with a nice used bookstore <laughs> and, uh, you know, give you a Mafia cat to like rummage through the stacks of it. And uh, you just get to sell used paperbacks and fuck over authors.
1: You know, I mean, Paola had ended by that point. So I think it sounds plausible. Okay.
0: Well, there's a ton more to talk about in this comic. I think most of the other things I wanted to bring up are going to come up in the minutiae. Was there anything you wanted to cover before we started heading in that direction?
1: No, I have a lot of minutiae, but my two notes prior to it were Two-Face is his Bruce's stalker, and he seemed happier with Dick. So (laughs) moving along.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Man, Dick Grayson's first name is the gift that just keeps on giving. I got a lot of prurient chuckles out of this comic book.
1: You know, it's a great reflection on him. I was talking with a fellow critic about like, what does it say about Dick Grayson as a person that he's the guy who's like, yeah, you can totally call me Dick. I am that confident that I am like, great that you can call me Dick. That's fine. That's a power move.
0: Oh, it totally is. And I had never really thought of it that way. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Well, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. it's not the biggest part, it's just minutia, like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Elana, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's talk about the best titan. Okay, every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, but also an Aqualad the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad?
1: Alfred. Absolutely. Alfred like actually gives Bruce what in real life would qualify as a good and useful talking to. So often in comics, we see people giving advice that we're supposed to take as like, oh, that's good advice. And you're like, that's actually terrible advice, (laughs) Professor X. Uh, Yeah. And this one, Alfred is giving advice that's actual good advice. And he's Speaking from the heart and like really caring about Bruce, and Bruce would completely be dead without him. Like, that's Batman's dad, really, right? And he's telling him what needs to be said. And he's setting up Bruce to understand how he needs a partnership, which is sort of like a teammate kind of thing to do.
0: I agree completely. I had two potential options if we're going to go by strict titans rules. i was like well technically i think the only titan in this issue is starfire so she's both the best and worst but if we're just going <laughs> by like which character did the best job it is 100 percent alfred i love that speech it is a fair critique of batman comics in general too like this doesn't work as well if it is you just going in and dispensing two-fisted justice. The interesting thing about your character is the preparation that you put into it and the dedication and the research and shit. That's what makes you powerful. Not that you're the best at punches um, mm-hmm. and now you're trying to be the best at punches and it's just dumb. I love that as like kind of a meta commentary on Batman comics in general, but also mm-hmm. a specific like, hey, you got to knock this shit off. I thought it was great. And I loved Alfred. I loved the portrayal of him in this. Conversely, who did you have as your worst Titan?
1: Well, I'm going to have to say Dick because he's not here.
0: Hmm. I mean, none of the Titans are there. That's but, true. Uh,
1: but Dick's the mo- Dick's absence is the most disappointing of them, though.
0: It is, especially because he has specifically taken a hiatus from the Teen Titans to appear in Batman comics. (laughs) Does seem like he should maybe be around. I had Batman as my worst (laughs) Titan. He's just doing a shitty job. After Alfred gives that speech, he internalizes it, but he doesn't say anything like he just sits there and eats his fucking toast that his butler made him and is (laughs) kind of a dick about it. He comes around later on in the issue, but throughout it, for the most part, he's really not doing a great job in this comic.
1: That's why he needs Tim so bad. hmm.
0: Sartorially speaking, what did you think of the fashion in this comic book and what fashion choices do you think most need to be commented on?
1: Well, you know, I love a good Two-Face suit. Like, that's one of the great things about Two-Face in general. Uh And this is a little bit, you know, bread and butter, straightforward Two-Face suit. Like, they could have gone for more fun here, you know? But at least you're like, yeah, that's a Two-Face suit. Do you know what I mean?
0: It is odd. I think he's kind of going for a business casual (laughs) Two-Face, because instead of wearing the button-down shirt with the tie, he's just wearing kind of like a turtleneck under his two-toned jacket. So I, th- yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting, and I appreciated that. Uh, he also has a very nice standard trench coat and fedora look going on before we Good get the character reveal.
1: Yeah. But the best costume, my Sotorily Speaking Award, goes to Commissioner Gordon.
0: Commissioner Gordon's tie is rad as fuck. He's got a nice little like, I don't know, old timey bartender mustache wax thing going in his yeah. dapper little white mustache. It is a oddly like 80s version of Art Deco look that he yes, has. And exactly. yeah, it's pretty fucking rad. I am not something that you expect from Commissioner Gordon, I got to say.
1: No, he is like very much having a retro moment. It looks like he's made a choice and uh, I like it. He's very, he's very Art Deco. I like his choice. Good job, Commissioner Gordon. You fashion plate, you.
0: <laughs> I like that a lot as well. I also did want to point out uh, Starfire is wearing a very mm-hmm. nice robe and has her incredibly implausibly voluminous spacefire hair up in a bunch of towels. And I appreciated that we do not see the top of the towels. So we are led to believe that it it might just be like a caps for sale type situation (laughs) where it's just like (laughs) towels on towels on towels up until the fucking ceiling. (laughs) So that's what I like to believe about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't believe Corey. I mean, I I can believe Corey opened the door in a bathrobe, but I also can't believe... (laughs) I mean, it is Corey. So I guess she's like, whatever, I can burn things. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, what? What? I guess it's true. If I was that powerful, I might also answer the door to unknown men in a bathrobe, I guess, in my New York apartment. Tameranian culture is different than
0: she hasn't quite adjusted to our strange earth ways where you don't go out wearing a bathrobe.
1: But no, but I mean, she's not like showing anything inappropriate. It's just Mm -hmm. that it looks so vulnerable. Do you know what I mean? Like she's wearing more clothes. This bathrobe is more clothes (laughs) than she normally wears, right? But it's just sort of like, you know, here's what the issue is. It is a Batman comic and there is a woman opening an apartment door. Mm. And that is intrinsically going to trigger, in my mind, associations to Barbara Gordon getting shot. And I don't know that I would have had the same reaction if it was an X-Men comic and Storm was opening the door in the same circumstance.
0: Right. I think there's part of it with me where it's just like when you see somebody opening the door wearing a bathrobe, the only situation I can imagine myself doing that in is if I was in a hotel.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I'm like, she probably doesn't have her keys with her. She's going to get locked out.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: What character did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted or rather overacted in the most dramatic fashion in this comic?
1: I mean, Batman is the drama queen slash king of comics. So, Batman.
0: I think in general, you are right. And I had him as my initial impression just because I think the rule kind of has to be if Batman is in a comic book, he is the most dramatic person unless somebody takes the crown from him. Mm hmm. And I think in this issue, Two-Face might take the crown from him Mm. when he smashes his old-timey radio that he was listening to because of the voices not coming out of it. Like, he's talking to himself and Then he won't answer himself. So he smashes it. And you see the little tubes inside the radio? Like both the fact that he makes sure to only talk to himself through the (laughs) kind of old-timey radio you would listen to the shadow on,
1: Mm. and the fact that he then smashes it. He's got great taste in radios. I love it's really beautiful.
0: He really does. (laughs) I'm giving this to Two Face. Okay. But I certainly appreciate your logic that it is usually Batman and If I'm totally honest, it probably is Batman in this as well. He bites a bedsheet. And that brings us to our next category. <laughs> Elana, what was your favorite panel in this comic book?
1: Surprisingly, not that, although that was very entertaining. There's so much impressive work in this. It is really fucking hard to say one thing. So struggling quite a bit. I'm going to say, you know, it might be snap were snap were camera revealed camera hidden in the bag, piles of plops of blood in a bicycle frame. Like that might be it, but that page where that final page of his, of his confrontation with Alfred is so good too. Mm. I, and then the page of Batman's sadly shaving, yeah off kilter like you know what batman going into the catacomb. i had this moment of like moon knight is that you dracula give me my money you bastard (laughs) but like it's like bruce doing that and then you know i don't don't make me choose there's those are just three wonderful three absolutely wonderful pages
0: those are all great panels I had trouble narrowing it down to a single favorite as well. Definitely in contention were the four panel sequence that you mentioned, where it's the close ups of the camera, the camera going into the bag, the bicycle frame, and then the tire treads. Mm -hmm. All of that was done so very, very well. And it made such a nice scene putting them together. I loved that. I loved the panel we referenced already, which I called... Batman dreams of eating pancakes, which is what I like to believe is what is happening <laughs> in, that, in that scene where he is just biting the shit out of his bedsheet. <laughs> oh, like, Bruce, don't dream it. Be it. Yeah. Just have Alfred make you some pancakes when you wake up. <laughs> He'll do it. He'll be happy to do it. Also, the opening splash page where he is fighting the Ravager it elevates the Ravager character to have him fighting Bruce one-on-one on on Mm. top of a dam or waterfall because it immediately, whenever that happens in a comic, and it happens a surprising amount, (laughs) but it always draws my mind to like the last Sherlock Holmes story where he dies fighting Moriarty on top of the waterfall. I don't know if that's a conscious decision to evoke that, but that's what it always does for me. And it's also just like a really well-drawn panel. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I also have difficulty narrowing it down to a single panel. I think I am going to give the slight edge just because of my headcanon for it, though, to... Bruce dreams of eating pancakes because it is a very nicely drawn panel, too. He's just he's sweating. He wants those pancakes so bad and he's just eating a bed sheet. And that's not Mm -hmm. good for you.
1: Well, you know, the panel right underneath it where his arm flings up and you can see Alfred is like wringing sweat from a towel. And this is horror look on Alfred's face and the (laughs) arm motion. It's like almost like Frankenstein. Like there's a lot of powerful shit happening on that page.
0: That whole sequence really is great. And it is nice to see Alfred kind of getting the play that I think he deserves.
1: It's a great Alfred. People suggest you give Jim Arparo and Mike DiCarlo, like, just all the money. Just give them the money. I hope that they did. They did not.
0: No, they did not.
1: Let's take
0: this party to the bozo. Which instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you like the best?
1: Often when the show has presented that category and it's an issue that I've read, I kind of struggle with answering that. But in this case, very clear moment that I would cite, which is one of the thugs is saying, who likes to read? And Batman comes off panel saying, you should. (laughs) It's so good. What a bird. And that's like the first thing Batman says to them when he shows up in the warehouse. Like, who said that? Ah, I'm getting attacked. Amazing.
0: It's one of the first things he says in the issue as well. Like he says like, thanks for patching me up, Alfred. Initially, before Alfred launches into his speech. But yeah, when he comes out of hiding and just says, You should. It's not even an insult. It's like he's giving a PSA like he can't hide anymore. (laughs) He's just like reading is fundamental, (laughs) like shows up in the bookmobile instead of the Batmobile and just starts flinging literature around. It's a very fun moment. I liked when Alfred told Batman that lately his crime fighting tactics have been unimpressive to say the least. It is just such an understated and devastating comment that I think that worked really well. And I also appreciated when Two-Face called his own alter ego as Daffy as a duck. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought that was pretty fun.
1: Yeah, it feels like Two-Face would make reference to something that was kind of like timeless rather mm-hmm. than like currently like, you know, Daffy Duck transcends decades.
0: Oh, Yeah. Well, moving on to things that don't transcend the decades, what timestamps were you able to find in this comic?
1: It's interesting because this is such a classy and classic book that the question of timestamps is a little bit not begging for it, but they do exist. Which is in the radio um, news, in the radio news segment that is actually in the news, we hear of a young lady named Moon Kaplan who is a national spelling bee championship winner. Who told George Herbert Walker Bush to quote, read my lips and then quote, spelled an unprintable word. That is a timestamp. And I applaud Moon Kaplan because had I ever been capable of winning a spelling champion, I too would have said the same to George Herbert Walker Bush.
0: I appreciated that too. And I was disappointed when we learned later in the comic that that was actually Two hallucinating that
1: part. Oh, that was?
0: Yeah. Aww. Because at the end of the broadcast, when it goes back to being the actual radio broadcast, there is a line. And now back to our regularly scheduled report, ellipses. Meeting the president was a dream come true. Oh, fuck. I know. I really wanted to believe You're that right. that yeah. the kid said that. That was my favorite part, maybe of the comic book. <laughs> <laughs> Although it did undercut it a little bit that it described her as an adolescent Abecedarian, which I like the word abecedarian, but neither of those words would seem to describe a nine-year-old spelling bee champion. Um, what is abecedarian? It sounds like it should mean something related to spelling, but it is
1: oh, ABC, ABC,
0: Yeah, it actually literally means putting things in alphabetical order or a novice. Like I can see where you would want, especially if you're going for the alliteration which I certainly have been known to stretch word meanings when going for alliteration. But she's nine, so she's not really an adolescent. And yeah, she's doing stuff with the alphabet, but it's not really the way that word works. Hmm.
1: It's a fun word, though. Oh, yeah, I'm into it.
0: And I think the other timestamp in this comic book is that I tend to forget that the 90s were a time when big corporate circuses were putting mom and pop circuses out of
1: business. Oh, so there is there's like a little bit of something to that. I don't know if you're completely joking or not.
0: I was mostly joking. I I, like I know there's Barnum and Bailey and Ringling. I I would have thought that by 1989, was
1: that still something that was happening? Well, they merged. Do you remember Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey merged?
0: Oh, I did not remember that. I know I went yeah. to one of them. I have a picture somewhere that I do not remember of me and my grandfather riding an elephant at one <laughs> oh, of wow. those. It really seems and, like and, that but, would be the sort of thing that would stick out in my memory. But, but no. this also
1: was sort of the coming moment where you start to see the Big Apple Circus, which was an attempt to go against the sort of big corporate circus, at least in, in my part of the country. It kind of became the thing. And like, so we would go to Big Apple Circus. We would not, we only went to Barnum & Bailey once. And like, we were just upset about the animals. They had like a fake unicorn. And we were like, they fucked up that poor goat's head. Like it was upsetting. And one of the big things with Big Apple Circus was one, it was one ring and it was supposed to be smaller, better view of everything. And all the animals that they used were only horses and dogs because horses and dogs are both raised to like people. And so Ah. working with them isn't cruel because horses are like, I like to do this. And dogs are like, I like to do that. Whereas lions and tigers and elephants don't want to be there, guys. They don't. I believe that that was like when the Big Apple Circus was becoming like a bigger thing, like as the antidote to the more corporate Ringing bludders and Barnum and Bailey type circus. And then you also had sort of Cirque du Soleil was starting to become a thing in America. Huh. So I feel like there's actually a little bit of something to that.
0: Okay, fair enough. Honestly, the phrase big corporate circuses, I found very amusing, but I guess that kind of was a thing?
1: Yeah, but just just one of them. There was the circus monopoly versus the little guys, basically.
0: Okay, I think it's time for a Battle of the Band Names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this comic book?
1: Well, I'm definitely a big fan of the Tsfai Brothers, because I feel like they'd probably open for Twin Temple.
0: I'm not actually familiar with Twin Temple.
1: What? Okay, you should check out Twin Temple. I believe they refer to themselves as being satanic doo um, Oh. As someone who actually really knows doo I'm like, it's not actually doo but it's doo-wop influence. <laughs> they have a very like 50s and 60s music referential sound that is all songs about how they worship Satan and our feminists. It's wow. very great. So the five brothers, you know, I just like it's two brothers, but the German word, it feels like, it feels like they could open for Twin Temples. So I, I, I'm definitely a fan of them.
0: Should th- they exist? That sounds pretty goddamn cool. Gosh, now I'm just picturing Sha-Na-Na worshiping the devil. Oh, Bowser. I think that's an excellent potential band name. I had a couple of options. One of them was Bludgeoned by Foes. They exist to be the antithesis of Guided by Voices.
1: <laughs> Love it.
0: And yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's pretty much just what they do they just like listen to Guided by Voices songs and then try to do the exact opposite. Not a lot of staying power, not a ton of originality, but they're very committed. And I appreciate that. Did you have any other band names?
1: Well, it feels like this is probably something that might appear in many comics. But with the headline Batman on the Rampage, there's the potential for just on the Rampage, which probably opened for at the drive-in.
0: Ooh, yeah, I, I can practically see that on a flyer. It's an excellent name. Uh, my other option is uh, Tri-State Area, and it, mm. it's a kind of cynical band that I think was formed. My imagining of what Tri-State Area is, is that it is Sir Mix-A-Lot's rap rock band that he made when he was really just trying to cash
1: in. Um mm, okay.
0: I saw an interview with Sir mix lot a while ago, and he was talking about the song My Posse's on Broadway, and he said that the reasoning behind the song was, well, when we were on tour, I noticed that every city has a street called Broadway. And so if we released that as a single, people would all think it was about their town and everyone would buy it. <laughs>
1: He's probably right.
0: (laughs) Which I think is pretty charming. But I think that uh, a tri-state area is a similar thing because almost everywhere that I have been has something called the tri-state area, (laughs) and it always seems to apply to three different states. And so I feel like along similar lines, he's like, well, rap rock's pretty popular right now. So uh, yeah, I'll I'll, uh, start a rap rock group called Tri-state area. And uh, anyone who's in any tri-state area will want to buy that album.
1: There you go, yes. But well, that's why it's also a running joke in um, Phineas and Ferb.
0: Oh, I'm not familiar.
1: Oh, yeah, no, they have a, the villain is always talking about, like, we'll rule global domination of the tri-state area. I'm not doing his voice right. I don't watch the show that much, but there's like a whole running gag about everything being relevant oh. to the tri-state area, which states, who can say? But, you know, whatever.
0: Makes sense. I think in the old Ben Edland the Tick comics, there were a lot of references to the tri-state area as well. So, yeah. I mean, there's two album sales right there. Uh, three, probably <laughs> Phineas and Ferb will each want their own copy. And so uh-huh. will The Tick. And so, yeah, I, I think uh, Sir mix marketing strategy is going to pay big dividends. So of our options here, which band name do you think is the best band name?
1: I, I don't know.
0: Uh, there's a lot of really strong options here. The Spy Brothers... I think that sounds pretty good,
1: but it was mostly an opportunity to make a joke about Twin Temples. So, Mm. are you okay with Tri-State Area? Sure, go for it.
0: Okay, Tri-State Area. We will put that up and uh, see how they do in the Twitter poll. Mm -hmm. I've been really behind on posting those lately. Uh, I do think that uh, the Mighty Endowed is still the winner, but we're a few weeks behind. So there is every chance that the Mighty Endowed will be going up against Tri-State Area. But nice. we'll find out. I will get caught up on running those polls. We'll do some back to backs and see how things work out. Well, Alana, I have just one further question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1990 and the month of our Lord, October. What was Aqualad probably up to, Elana poot?
1: You know, Aqualad had a pretty busy month of aquatic intrigue. For example, on October 1st, a meteorite exploded above the Pacific Ocean. Meanwhile, in the English Channel, they were finishing up the construction of what would become the channel. And so that was a whole lot of undersea monitoring to have to deal with if you're Aqualad. So he decided it was going to take a little bit of a break. He visit his friends on Titans Island. As he's swimming over there, he is coming up to shore and he's noticing that there are, on the docks of Brooklyn, an extremely high number of delivery trucks don't just have slush tires, but they've busted in windows. He's seeing guys looking at them and they're like, let me check the engine. Oh my God, the whole engine's like gone. And You know, I I think a lot of people in that moment might have been like, oh, man, New York's a really tough town. But Aqualad is savvy and he's been around and he knows that actually there was a lot less crime in New York in 1990 than there was before, in part because of the great work of New York's best mayor of all time, David Dinkins. But he wasn't sure what to make of the anti-delivery truck vandalism. So he decided it was time to get to the bottom of the mystery. Why are there so many delivery vehicles with their tires slashed and their windows broke? You know, he's learned some good detective skills over the years from such folks as Dick Grayson. So he's doing a stakeout and he's watching and he observes that these trucks that this is happening to, they're all newspaper delivery trucks. They're all coming in and out of the newspaper distribution warehouses in both Kearney, New Jersey and Brooklyn, New York. He finds out that there is a newspaper strike going on. The predominantly the people striking are the workers in the printing presses and the delivery workers. And as he's watching, doing overnight stakeouts to see what's been going on, he's realizes that the folks who are breaking up the trucks, these are not professional criminals. These are like the workers themselves whose jobs are being threatened by the strike breakers and whose work is being deprofessionalized, who are all going to be getting laid off by the daily news. And Well, Aqualad is a friend to all sea creatures. Aqualad is also a friend to all workers. And when workers are being exploited by the bosses, you know, sometimes things get to be a little bit intense and there might be some light industrial sabotage. But Aqualad doesn't want any of the workers to get in trouble. So he goes and he calls his friend, New York's best mayor David Dinkins, and says, hey, can I file this report with you so that you can, you you know, you don't have to have the police investigate this. I can just give you the report. And New York's best Mary David Dinkins, says, of course, Aqualad, I trust you. And he goes and he puts together his some materials and says, look, in conclusion, it's Batmite. And David Dinkins looks at him and winks and says, yep, it's Batmite. <laughs> and a couple of months later, the uh, union won the strike.
0: Very nice. I'm glad that Aqualad got to employ his sea strengthened sense of social justice.
1: Exactly. Yes. Thank you.
0: Well, that is certainly a very important thing that Aqualad was up to in October of 1990. But it wasn't the only thing that he was up to. See, other than that, Aqualad had been contacted by the Olympics organization to serve as kind of an unofficial mascot of the Asian Games, which was happening in Beijing, China in October of 1990. I say unofficial mascot because their official mascot was obviously Pan Pan, the panda bear, which must have been odd for people in France where that is the sound that they believe a gun makes. (laughs) Aqualad was over there. He was overseeing the aquatic events and just trying to foster a sense of community and goodwill in the area. It was the first time that China had hosted the Asian Games and... There was uh, a sense in 1990 of just kind of the world opening up in a way, and Aqualad wanted to be a part of that. Of course, there were people looking to take advantage of that, uh, which is why McDonald's contacted Aqualad. And they Mm -hmm. took him to their corporate headquarters and were like, hey, uh, so you're going to be at the Asian Games in Beijing. You know, we just this month opened the first McDonald's in China, and we would love it if you would be our spokesman. And Aqualad's listening to all of this. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm really not going to do anything like that. That's I'm <laughs> not into corporate sponsorship. That's a lot of bullshit. Yeah. That's that's not the Aqualad way. Mm-mm. But then he saw something which, well, it certainly didn't make him change his viewpoint. Just absolutely flabbergasted him because as they are at the corporate headquarters, the McDonald's people bring in some of their new products. And they're like, well, you know, just try some French fries. Eat some French fries. It's like, yeah, that's a good French fry. I'm still not going to give into your corporate ownership. And then they brought out what they were introducing at the time, which was trick-or-treating baskets. They had already had these before, but they had changed it so that the ghost-shaped Halloween trick-or-treat bucket that the Happy Meal came in started glowing in the dark. And so... They're really stoked that they've got this new glow in the dark shit going on. So they turn out the lights and they bring in a bunch of buckets and they're like, "Okay, but check out how cool this is. And Aqualad loses his shit. He's like, oh my God, what the fuck is that? And they're like, pretty neat how they glow in the dark, right? It looks like ghosts. He's like, no, I know what ghosts are. I see ghosts all the goddamn time. I live in Atlantis and the DC universe. Place is fucking lousy with ghosts. I mean, what is that plastic container looking thing that you are carrying around? And they're like, oh, these are our trick-or-treat buckets. And he's like, I'm sorry, your trick-or-treat what? And they're like, buckets and he's like a bucket oh my god that is a fucking game changer because atlantis had never had the concept of a bucket before that's why it was always such a hassle for aqualad and aquaman to have to remember to get back to the ocean after an hour back when that was their weakness or they would die immediately and they still kept going to space and shit like that And they always had to find these new innovative ways to get back in the water because they had never heard of a bucket before. And so Aqualad still turned down the corporate sponsorship, but he took a couple of those buckets back to Atlantis. And uh, he really turned things around for Atlantis, introducing buckets to a previously high-tech but bucketless society. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to in October of 1990.
1: That makes a lot of sense, because remember, the enthusiasm of the of the walrus finding its bucket shows you the slow dissemination of bucket technology throughout the sea world.
0: What walrus found
1: its bucket? The walrus. Oh, it's a meme. Oh. I has a bucket. Oh, no, they're stealing my bucket. Oh, it is it a cartoon of a walrus? No, it's old internet, but not really that old, because nothing on mm. the internet is. Um, <laughs> meme of a walrus that looks very happy to have a bucket and then upset that the bucket was taken away. And oh. if I think about it too hard, it makes me sad. And so my husband, this probably explains one of the reasons we're married. is like, it's okay, Lana. They're going to give him the bucket back. They just <laughs> took it away to put more fish in it. I'm like, right. I really hope they did because he looks so happy and then they took it away.
0: Oh.
1: Um, so, but anyway.
0: That sounds very sweet. I am currently experiencing a phase that I never have before where I find walruses terrifying because I watched that sea elephant footage of sea elephants attacking a car. And I love sea elephants too. But those things and walruses are burly as fuck. And they will mess you up. Yeah, elephant seals. What was I calling them? I love
1: elephant seals. I have seen elephant seals fairly up close on. It's over by St. Louis at Pispo. They just like showed up one day and were like, hi, we live here now. And so they blocked it off to let them just like do their thing because they're fucking huge. I love them. They're ridiculous. They smell terrible. They make hilarious noises. And I love them.
0: I agree. But I have seen footage of them fighting. And oh, my God, that shit is terrifying. And you ain't kidding about them being huge. We've already discussed it on the show, so I'll probably edit this part out. But
1: do you know how big those fuckers are? I've seen them. So I do like I was there, man. I smelled the motherfuckers. But nine thousand pounds. That's not a real number. <laughs>
0: ah, terrifying. But yes, adorable. We, we have a, a cartoon up on our wall of a, a sea elephant eating donuts. Um, Aww. Elephant seal. Why do I keep calling them sea elephants? I don't know. I think I maybe it's little... the circus talk and I'm thinking of sea yeah. lions. So if there's sea lions, there should be sea elephants. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, we have a, we have a picture of an elephant seal eating donuts and it's adorable. And and I I, I do love them and, and, and they're cute. But man, seeing an angry seal, I I'm doing it again. Seeing an angry <laughs> elephant seal go at another angry elephant seal is one of the most disturbing things I have ever seen. Thanks, Blue Planet.
1: I wish they didn't have to fight each other. I
0: mean, I, I don't Dominance. think they have to. Yeah. I, but we like, just they're... need to get some like <laughs> elephant seal mediators in there and have them they try to work therapy. things out. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Alana, thank you so much for joining us today. I had a great time talking with you about this really good comic book.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It made me so happy to get invited back. Like you said, I am excited to continue reading the series. I actually did read the next issue and it was also very good. So, making Excellent. me excited to read a Batman book? Like what even? That's <laughs> that's wild.
0: If people would like to get into touch with you or find your work, how would they go about that if you would like them to?
1: I would love them to. You should listen to my podcast, which is Graphic Policy Radio. It's on all of the podcast platforms. Now that Batman will be watchable at home, I can watch Batman and then maybe cover it on the podcast, which is something I would do. You know, we just had an episode up with Kieran Gillen talking about his new uh, X Men comic. We did a deep dive into Moon Knight comics and always excited to have you back to talk, I hope, uh, to talk about the end of Young Justice Season 4 when that concludes. And um, it's not a cartoon, but Our flag means death is a fucking masterpiece, so we will be doing an episode on that just because I'm drunk with power.
0: I'm on like episode eight of that, and I am loving it very much.
1: And of course, you can find me on Twitter, a little bit too much, at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn.
0: And I very highly recommend that you follow her and also listen to Graphic Policy Radio because that is a really great podcast and I would be delighted to come back on it anytime. Yay! If you would like to get into touch with Corey and me, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? at ttwasteland@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also up in uh, various places on the socials media, saying a thing, doing a thing. But uh, if you can't find us on the socials media, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. I'll be in there, and Corey will too. And you know what? I think Alana will be in there as well. Alana, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week?
1: I will be in their hearts Reminding them that they should watch Our Flag Means Death. Just if you're like listening to your heart and your heart's like, watch the gay pirate show. That's me. That's my voice telling you to do it.
0: <laughs> Excellent, man. Tycho ITT makes a hell of a fucking black beard. Oh, my God. I'll be in there, too. And uh, yeah, fuck it. I'll, I'll, I'll be watching some Our Flag Means Death. I still have a few episodes to finish up. That's some good stuff right there. Oh, you know what else I'm going to be watching? I haven't watched the final episode of Los as Spookies, and I really like that. That's on HBO. I, I keep meaning to watch it, but it is subtitled, and I have a really bad tendency to uh, multitask when I'm consuming media. So watching a subtitle thing can be kind of a hard sell. But Los as spookies is a wonderful show. So I'll I'll be finishing that up.
1: I'm Googling it right now. I had not heard of it.
0: It's set, I think, in Central America, and it is about a group of amateur special effects people. But there's a ton of like magical realism in it. And they're trying to get their papers to come to America to work on a big movie with <gasps> oh Carol God. Kane. I love and it. It's really good.
1: It sounds wonderful and always nice to have an excuse to work on my Spanish.
0: If you enjoy the show and would like to help support it financially, you can check us out at patreon.com slash TT Wasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the podcast What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. New episode of that went up pretty recently. There are also a whole bunch of Videos that I have made where I review classic comic books. I have recently been reading a bunch of romance comics from the early 70s, and those have been a lot of fun to talk about. So if you want to check that stuff out, then you can check us out on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who has donated because it makes it possible for us to keep doing the show. And I like doing the show. So thanks.
1: And we like you doing the show too.
0: Oh, shucks. Thank you. If you would like to contribute to the show in a non-financial way, why not, uh, tell a friend? Tell an enemy? Tell, well, we've already been over, you cannot tell a sea an enemy. I mean, you can, but it won't do any good. Um, they are not our target demographic. Very few of them have electronic listening devices. But, uh, you know, tell some other people. That'll, that'll be fun, if if you feel like it. And, uh, Leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. Helps people find the show. And so if you think the show is something that people should find, then uh, do that. Anyway, thanks again, Alana. And until next week, when Corey gets back with his new power set. Shit.
1: Until then, just keep listening to this episode over and over and over again.
0: Ooh, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, I think it will probably induce madness, but a kind of pleasant madness,
1: you know? I didn't hide any subtextual messages in it at all about New York's best mayor, David Dinkins. So I think it's safe.
0: OK, so in the Tribe Called Quest song, when they say, Mr. Dinkins, would you please be my mayor? They, they actually meant that, mm-hmm. right? I could never get a read yes. on whether they were being sarcastic or not there. They meant it. Good for them, man. Tribe Called Quest was great.
1: And Tribe Called Quest bringing it back to my uh, Aqualad Waput. Tribe Called Quest performed at a music concert to raise money for the striking newspaper workers.
0: Man. Until next week. I know. Go listen to some more Tribe Called Quest. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. And they it.
1: Let's talk about the best Titan.
0: Okay. Was was there a music sting in the background? Was that you?
1: No, that was the street. Okay. <laughs> that was just Brooklyn being Brooklyn. Nice.